The Black Doctors Podcast highlights the stories of minority professionals with the goal of inspiring others. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and share with others, because the next generation can't be what they don't see. Tune in every Monday to hear our stories told by us. Hello and welcome back to the Black Doctors Podcast. This week, uh, it's going to be something a little different. We're talking with Dr. Jamal Dixon. He is an internal medicine physician practicing in Atlanta, Georgia. He has a, a great educational uh, pedigree, having trained at both Meharry and Morehouse of Meharry for medical school and Morehouse School of Medicine for residency. Dr. Dixon, thank you so much for joining us and for sharing with us today. Thank you for having me on your platform. Um, I really enjoy it and I really want to share the story and, you know, provide help to those out there that might be going through uh, what I experienced. And this is uh, going to be a pretty uh, powerful episode and story. But first, Dr. Dixon, talk, let's talk about when you decided to become a physician. So I decided early on um, in life, just as a child, I was around like five or six. It wasn't anything special, but with my mom being a nurse, my dad doing orthotics, um, it really just kind of spoke to me as something intriguing. It was scientific. You know, I got to interact with people. I got to figure out and discover a case and what was wrong. So that really attracted me to medicine. And it was just something different uh, in my community that we didn't have a lot of. And so the aspect of standing out also um, attracted me to the medical field. And where'd you go to college? So I went to undergrad at the University of Georgia in Athens, Georgia. Yeah, and then, uh, so coming out of college, you knew you wanted to go into medicine, so you were, you know, what did you study, and how did you set yourself up to be successful in your applications? So, my journey is slightly different. When I started my courses, my first major was biochemistry and molecular biology, because I figured that sounded good, that would be something <laughs> that looked good on paper, that's what they needed to get into med school. When I started looking at the coursework, uh, there was a website, uh, Course Reval at the time. I don't think it exists anymore. But they would list the professors teaching the classes, what percentage of A's they would give, and just rate the classes in terms of difficulty. When I looked at those, I saw a lot of negative remarks. They only give out 5% A's, all these things. And it's like, I can't afford to have my GPA drop taking these super hard classes, you know, what am I doing? And then everyone takes chemistry, organic chem, and going through that, I said, I can't do four years of this. I don't want any of that. And I talked with my counselor, uh, who also, you know, had, knew a lot of people that went through med school. And the counselor told me, hey, for most med schools, all you really need are the prerequisite courses. If you do well in those, your major can be something else so that you don't have to worry about your GPA dropping. I was like, oh, well, let me switch to something I actually like a little bit better. And so I switched to psychology as a major with uh, pre-med. And that was right as my second year started. So I did psychology. Those courses were interesting they were fun but they were a lot easier than plant biology cell biology you know differential calculus all these things that they try to make you take 
to boost your, you know, your application that you really don't need. Yeah. Right. So that was my journey, just taking psychology. I did pre-med. I took advantage of the easier courses to get my GPA up. And I don't feel bad about it because we're not taught to work smart. Right. You know, as black people, we're taught, hey, you work hard. Work twice as hard. You'll get there. When we can work smart, too, if we just knew the right people and we had the right information disseminated. So I'm a fan of working smart and not feeling guilty about it. I feel as black people, they try to make us feel guilty for working smart or finding the loopholes that other ethnic groups do. And we shouldn't. We yeah. should feel just as happy about working smart. We should be able to go sleep soundly at night for working smart too. So working smart got me in med school, believe it or not. Yeah, that's, that's huge because I get a lot of questions from uh, you know pre-med students wondering what they should major in and you know, they're going the pre-med route or biology and just not into the coursework. So I think it's huge for them to know that you can get to medical school with these other undergrad degrees. Oh, yeah, most definitely. Like, I would encourage them to take something you actually enjoy because even when you do your application, when you're writing your personal statement and those things, you can actually talk about those things. That's something that will make your application stand out. If I'm, you know, trying to look through all these applications. I'm getting hundreds and thousands. I see a whole bunch of them doing chemistry major, bio major, this major, that. And then someone comes with literary science or something just out of the box. I'm going to at least look and see, okay, why did they do that? And if you can tell a convincing story, an interesting story, that will likely get you the interview with something to talk about, makes you stand out. Because we have to understand the applications communities, they're humans too, right? Yeah. And so this narrative that they want to see nothing but scholars, they're going to get bored. I've talked with five admissions committees. You know, they get bored reading the same kind of artificial, puffed up kind of fluff when it comes to personal statements. So something interesting makes their job a lot easier, and that can really help you stand out, and it makes your undergrad experience a lot better because you're taking courses that are interesting. Now, for the pre-med, you still have to do well in those. There's no escaping <laughs> that. Right. Right? We can't, we can't escape that. But you don't have to overwork or do extra or try to overachieve because you really don't get credit for that when it yeah. comes to that mission. No one cares at the end of the day. How did you do in your pre-med courses, graduated with your degree, do you have an interesting story behind it? Be it. So that's just my take on it because it, it worked for me, and I've known others that were math majors that got in. You know, they did things they liked, and they made their life in undergrad a lot easier. Yeah, major key, major key alert. Um, so then you went to Meharry Medical College. What did that institution mean to you? How was your experience? Meharry was a great experience. Experience, uh, especially with it being HBCU and being right in a community that needed to be served, just with lower income, African American community, and just being around so many just black future doctors, dentists, 
Masters of Public Health, PhDs, to see all the black excellence kind of changes your whole perception on who we are and what we can be as people. Because yeah. if you just look at society, you just look at TV, you wouldn't really think we could do that. Even me personally, I'd never seen a black doctor before. And I was trying to be one. I had never seen <laughs> wow. one. You know, all the positions I had growing up, dentists, all anyone with a doctorate behind their name was a white man. You know, so... I'm trying to be something I'd never seen and go into a school with hundreds and hundreds of black people that are about to step into that uh, is really powerful. And when you're going through the issues of med school, dealing with patients, and you're dealing with microaggressions in the workplace, it's always better when you have people around you that understand Yeah, that you don't have to explain it to people that you don't have to code switch around because they get it and you guys kind of push each other to make sure that we all succeed so Meharry it was really a great place that we just you forge a lot of bonds there you know trial by fire everyone you know med, med school is hard dental school is hard PhDs dissertations defenses hard so when you have your people and people that look like you going through the trenches together, you really can't replicate that anywhere else. And when you talk to med students who are black that went to other schools that were majority white, it's just a totally different experience where they didn't have the support. They didn't have the people to look after them. They didn't have the people to boost their morale when they got a bad test grade or when they were studying for step one or step two. You know, they didn't have that sense of camaraderie that we had. So Meharry is very important. You know, school itself, I mean, school isn't fun, let's just be honest. But the people there, the professors there, the staff, everyone, it really makes a major impact, especially as a black person, to have that support as you go through that stage. Yeah, that, that's one of my favorite questions to ask on this show is is tell me about Meharry, tell me about Howard, tell me about Morehouse, yeah. and then uh, yeah, people just take off because it was such a an incredible experience for all of us that had the, the privilege to attend. Oh, most definitely, it can't you can't replicate it, and you can only really know what it's like if you've been to one. Yeah, if that makes sense. Yeah, if you know, you know. So coming out of Meharry. You know, life was, you know, you had your ups and downs as as we all do, pursuing this very right. difficult path through and to medicine. You matched into internal medicine. Uh, life was going well. How was that transition into residency? So going from med school where your scope of practice is limited to full-on residency where nurses, RTs, patients are looking at you to make the final decision, there's a bit of a learning curve that comes with that. It's exciting, but there's that learning curve that comes with it where you realize, okay, I'm really a physician now. Like they're really looking at me to make these decisions. Like I really 
you know, have someone's life in my hands and I'm really here now. Like you're not full fledged, but you're a resident. You're the MDs behind your name. It counts now. Everything you do counts. You have attendings behind you. Sure. Chief residents behind you. Sure. But in that moment, you're really making decisions. You're really studying disease processes. You're really there putting in orders, talking to families. You're doing the real work. So it was exciting in the beginning, especially at Grady. You know, you get to learn a lot. You see some zebras here and there. Uh, you learn how to think on your feet. It's really, it was a fun journey to actually be there. And with, you know, it being through Morehouse, being at Grady, you still see more of us in there, which always makes transition a little bit easier. And you were, you know, going along, doing your thing, gearing up to finish and, and start practice, and then everything changed. So here's, here's how it changed. So uh, I'm in my third year. I'm at the Cat Medical Center. Well, it's now Emory because they bought it. But this is 2017, August going through my rotation and all of a sudden I remember I was leaving the hospital and I was drinking a smoothie and I remember I got full after like three sips hmm. and that never happened to me before. Usually I could clear like three or four plates out, but now I can only finish like half of a farmhouse smoothie drink. So in my physician mind, I'm saying, okay, this, this hasn't happened before. This is early satiety. What's, what's going on? This Something's not right here. And I knew that I had vacation on uh, Labor Day weekend. That was my next vacation. So I said, hey, it's another week and a half. Let me just get to this Labor Day weekend. I can just go get a CT. We can figure out what's going on. So in the back of my mind, I was concerned, but I didn't want to believe that it could be a cancer or a tumor. It, you know, you just start having that denial process take over yeah. because I had no other symptoms. So I was like, well, I don't have any other symptoms. There's no way that it could be that. You know, maybe I was just bloated. You know, maybe I just had extra gas. It had to be something else because I wasn't losing weight. My bowel movements were normal. I was urinating normally. No abdominal pain. Couldn't be that. Yeah, you're running the so differential and, and the signs. Are yeah, I'm running the full differential, and I'm trying to just convince myself it's not that. Uh, Labor Day comes. I go in that night. It's around 10 p.m. I went to Piedmont um, in Midtown. So I go. I give them the symptoms. And by this time, the satiety had gotten worse. So I knew something was wrong here. So they do the CT. Uh, they come back about 45 minutes. ED doctor comes in with the, hey, I have bad news face. Because I've mm -hmm. had that face before. So right. I already knew when he came in what was going on. Oof. So, he, so he walks in, says, hey, you have this massive tumor. We have to have surgery. we got to get this out, like, soon rather than later. So... I was still in disbelief, so I said, hey, well, turn around and show me. You got it on Epic? Turn it around. Let me see it. So he turns it around, um, and it's a massive picture 
Uh, that's on my Instagram page. Because I took a picture of it. And when I saw it, I just went numb. Like, I didn't even feel anything. It was just numb and just shocked and just being surprised. Because I was 31 at the time. So I'm 31, never had any other health issues. And now there's this massive tumor taking up most of my abdominal cavity that somehow didn't metastasize, which, you know, was a blessing. But it was just, how did I get here? How am I here when I was healthy, finishing my third year? I'm about to finally make hospitalist money and not be broke. How did I get to this point? And I had no family history, nothing on my mom or my dad's side. How did this grow so large without me knowing? And and, and I'm How, looking, I'm looking at this picture yeah. now. Like, you got to go. Is Instagram is memoirs of a patient, and yeah, the, I, speechless. Yeah, yeah. So what he told me was from the CT when we looked through it, it had pushed all my intestines into my pelvis. And I was like, okay, I can see that. But I haven't had any issues with bowel movements. What? None. No bleeding, no constipation. It was coming out like it was normal. So I was like, how could this happen? You know, it pushed, it literally pushed all the other organs out of the way. And it just grew slowly. That's what I was told. And then the surgical oncologist said, well, with these kinds of tumors, they grow really slow. It's probably been there for like two years. And you just didn't know about it. So, fast forward. They told me to get a second opinion, which was really to see who could have an opening sooner to do the surgery. Um, went to a, another hospital. They told me I needed another CT. Then I had to wait a week just to see them before they would decide when to do the surgery. So I couldn't go with them, went back to Piedmont, and the surgeon, um, Dr. Andrew Page, surgical oncologist, um, he had an opening for September 13th. So we booked that. Um, I told my program director, my chief resident, so we could get to FMLA so that they would know where you know I was going, that I had to take medical leave. So one of the things that struck me about that time was trying to figure out how to tell my parents. Mm. And this is one of the main things that I've learned that I'm using in my endeavors now, my services, is patients, we have a tendency to hide or lie or downplay what's going on in our lives because we think we're protecting the people that we love from grief. And that's what I was doing with my mother. You know, I got diagnosed on September 3rd. I didn't tell her about the cancer or the surgery until it was around 8 p.m. September 12th. Right before I had to drive there and check in and do the go lightly and prepare for the surgery. So, and 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 I had seen her. Oh, she's in Atlanta. I had seen her almost every day during that time period. Uh. During those 10 days, I'd seen her almost every day. Said nothing. Because I figured I have to protect her from the pain 
of hearing that her only child has a cancer and he might die on that table. And I felt if I could spare her for 10 days, I helped out somehow. And that's something that we as patients do. We want to protect those around us from that grief, from the trauma. And so we might hide something. We might lie about it until the last minute just so we can say, hey, I cut down her period of sadness by this amount of time. Now, it's not the best way to do it, but it's rooted in love. And at the time, you couldn't have told me that I was wrong in doing that. Yeah. I thought I was 100% correct. So when I told her, and she was a nurse, so there was no, like, sugarcoating it. Like, she knew how bad it was. And that was also part of it. So she's like, why didn't you say anything? And she was, you know, she was upset, as, of course, any parent would be. My dad took it better. But we talked about it right then and there because, in my mind, if I wait until the last minute, you don't have time to cry about it. We got to go. So we went. Um, that night, did the go lightly and got prepped in the morning. So they came in, and this is when I started to get all these kind of procedures done that I'd done in residency. So I was like, okay, you know, as you know, anesthesiologists, they have the team come in, they put in your centrals, your arts, you know, they're doing the lines, all of that. And they wheeled me in. And the strange thing about the surgery, the thing in medicine, the only thing I was really concerned about was extubation. It's just my gag <laughs> reflex. I just, ah, I just hate seeing it. Anything else in medicine doesn't bother me, you know, but just the, the extubation, the gag, re- ah, you know, so <laughs> I, that was the thing I was worried about the most, <laughs> you know, so I was just like, ah, I, just, I know I'm going to hate it oh, man. when they wake me up. And then I'm awake and the tube is there and they just yank Ah, That was what I was worried about the most. (laughs) So they wheeled me in. And this is when I found out I had a higher drug tolerance. uh, Because they did the initial dose um, of sedation. Did nothing. I was as awake as I am now. That's what I was on the tape. I was like, yeah, still awake. Might need to crank that up a little bit more. (laughs) All those so, days at Georgia and Meharry catching up with you. Yeah, I, I don't know. So <laughs> they cranked it up two more times. I went out. Uh, they woke me back up. Um, surgery was nine hours. So oh. what they found was the tumor is a GI stromal tumor, or we call it GIST for short. So it started from the front part of my stomach and grew outwards into my abdomen, right? Mm -hmm. but there was a second part of the tumor that was going backwards to reach the backside of my stomach. And that's when it started blocking off everything. And that's when I was unable to eat as much because it grew backwards. Right. So Mm -hmm. because of that, they had to cut out 60% um, of my stomach, the distal part. So they did that. And then they took the transverse colon, because they couldn't get clean margins from it. So they took that and removed that and attached that together. And then they attached the 40% of my stomach that was left to uh, the small intestine. So basically they did a Bill Roth 2. 
um, procedure, which all my surgeons will, will know what that is. So that's what they did. It took nine hours. Uh, so they wake me up. Ironically, I didn't even experience the extubation. I, I wasn't huh. even awake for that. Like, <laughs> as soon as I came to, like, if the tube was already out, I was like, oh, okay. And so the pain came in, right? So they, yeah. you know, took me up there. Um, I stayed for seven days. Um, they had me on MPO the first couple, took me off. Um, and then I was discharged on my birthday. And, and when you were in uh, PO, was, were you hungry? How, how was that? Very hungry. I hate, oh, MPO is the worst. One of the worst things, if you can imagine, because you still have the NG tube in, which uh. is annoying. And you can't eat anything, but you are hungry. Even though they cut a large part of my stomach out, I was still hungry. So it's ice chips, it's you know, all this stuff, you're just waiting for the day you can eat, right? And so it's, it's rough. It's hard to get through. Um, but we made it through. The MPO took me off, took the tube out, and they discharged me home. So I'm home on my birthday. Four days later, I start noticing that I'm getting pale, uh, feeling hot. I'm breathing really fast. Right? So I take my temperature and it's 102.4. I'm like, oh, I'm septic. I got to oh, go no. back. Something went wrong here. Right? So I call the ambulance. They take me back. Um, do another CT. Did, did you tell your mom? And then they have... Oh, no, I told her this time. Okay. Uh, I told her this time. Like, I called 911, then I called her and I said, hey, they're taking me back. Uh, so they were there that night. And they did a second surgery, um, abdominal exploration, and they cleared out a lot of the infection. So what happened was when they did the anastomosis from the stomach and they attached it to um, the duodenum, there's this syndrome called uh, duodenal leak syndrome, right? When the pressure builds up too much and then it kind of ruptures and then all that intestinal fluid leaks out into the abdominal cavity. So that's what happened. So now I had an infection. So five-hour surgery, they cut through the same opening they did before, uh, open lap. And then they put in a duodenostomy tube, feeding tube, and then they started me on antibiotics. And they cultured it. Um, I had VRE, uh, pan-sensitive pleb, E. coli um, from the infection, right? So I know how bad that is, whatever. Right? Cool. So second surgery. Now, because of the infection, because of the blood loss, having to get transfused two units of blood, then the lung infection started from that on the left side. And, you know, the big fear in pyena, right? So they tried to do, they did thorsentesis, no malignancy. Great. They tried to do a CT, got a drainage. And before they did it, I told them, hey, you guys need to increase that sedation, you know, because it took them a little more to get me out. Make sure you give me enough. So yeah. they put me down for the CT, got a drainage to get the fluid out to try to remove all of it from the left lung. So I wake up 
and I think it's over, right? Uh-oh. And all of a sudden, I just feel this sharp pain in my, my left rib cage, and it just gets sharper, sharper, and sharper. And I was like, oh, we're not done here. <laughs> They're not done here. Oh, boy. And I was like, oh, this is what getting sad feels like. This is awful. So I started yelling because I'm just, because I don't know what to do because I'm on my side. They got this needle in me still, and now I'm awake. So oh, oh. I can feel it now. So I'm just yelling, right? I can't move, but I'm yelling. And so then they turn up whatever it was. Maybe it was versed that. I don't know what it was. But they turn it up. They put me out. Then next time I wake up, I'm back in the room. Cool. So they weren't able to get all of it out. And so then they had to do the third surgery, which was a vat. Um, video-assisted thoroscopy um, to take it out. So that was a two-hour surgery, um, and then they put in two chest tubes, stayed in for a week and a half, right? So this is October now. So the rest of the stay was to make sure the infection cleared and to monitor my kidney. And this is where uh, patient empowerment and fighting for yourself and advocating for yourself as a patient comes into play. Because um, I was internal medicine, so everything I was going through, I treated it, I knew how to manage it and all that, so I became an active participant. Now, some of that was professional courtesy, because, hey, you're a physician, we're a physician. We, ah. So every day, hey, what are the labs? We're going to go over these labs before y'all make any decision that's going on, because I'm actively being taught this. So I, I know what's going on, too. So the main issue I had was with the um, nephrology, because they wanted to do a temporary dialysis on me. Because uh, my creatinine went from 0.8 to uh, 5.4. Mm-hmm. So they were like, hey, we need to do a temporary dialysis. And I was like, you're not doing anything, because one, I'm peeing a lot. You know, like, I'm filling these jugs up. So clearly, my kidneys are working. Two, I had an infection. I lost a lot of volume. had to get transfused blood. Like, I have all these reasons for pre-renal azotemia, right? right? All the reasons for just AKI. So I was like, let me eat, treat the infection. This is going to go down. We'll be all right. If I stop peeing, I'll let you know. And then we'll go from there. And then the other aspect was my chem panel was normal, with the exception of the creatinine. Right. So I was like, all my electrolytes are normal. My urine electrolytes are fine. No. Like, we, have, yeah. we have no reason. The AEIO. You know? Yeah. There's, there's nothing. So <laughs> that was one. The other part I learned about was noncompliance. And... As physicians, dentists, pharmacists, anyone in this field, I think culturally we're taught if someone is non-compliant, then there's an ignorance or lack of fact, and mm-hmm. that you educate them, and then they'll be compliant. But that's really not true, because when I went through the second surgery and they started to feed me, I was effectively a bariatric patient. Right. Yeah. And what they tell you 
if you do any kind of vertical sleeve surgery or whatever weight loss surgery you do that involves reducing stomach volume, what they tell you in the beginning is your food, your solid food, and your beverage have to be separated by 30 minutes to an hour. So whichever one you pick first, you got to wait at least 30 minutes for the second. So if you eat your food first, you got to wait 30 minutes to drink something. If you drink your beverage first, you got to wait 30 minutes to eat. So they told me that. I had to look it up. Okay, this is valid. So if you do it, you get dumping syndrome, enteral feeding syndrome. You get all these things, right? Yeah. So I'm sitting in bed, and I understand what's going on. I can explain the pathophysiology of all of these processes. I know what it is, how it works, what's supposed to happen. And I said, nah, there's no way that I'm going to separate this by 30 minutes. I'm going to eat it all at the same time like I want to. I'm going to enjoy it. And whatever comes after that comes after that. I don't care. But I'm not about to separate my food and my drink after being NPO again. No, no, we're not doing that. So I Uber eat it because there were a lot of restaurants in the area. Oh, I Uber Uber eat it every day uh, because the hospital food was nasty. I Uber eat it. And first meal, um, sweet hut, actually. Uber eat it. So, you know, I had the the chicken nuggets and some of the soup, some of the teas, the the, uh, milk tea. So ate all of it at the same time. Right, I'd say about ten minutes into eating, the dumping syndrome happens. So you get nauseated, you get dizzy, stomach ache, headache. You're just dripping in sweat, and then your heart starts beating fast. Right, so I'm feeling all of it. It's real. It's real. Lasted about fifteen minutes, then kind of goes away. So you know the nurse had been there monitoring, making sure everything is okay. After, you know, I started feeling better, she's like, okay, so, you know, how do you feel now? Like, you saw that it happened, you know, are you going to, you know, get on board with what's going on now? Like, how do you feel about what just happened? And I was like, you know what? It was worth it. And I'm going to do it again. (laughs) And that was my response. And that, it clicked right there that sometimes noncompliance isn't about lack of knowledge. Because that's yeah. what we're told, especially when it comes to African-Americans. If they want to refuse a treatment or they don't want to take a medication, oh, they're ignorant. They just don't know the science. They don't know what's going on. We have to educate them and be their savior. And that's not always the case. So in my case, it wasn't ignorance. It was just that amidst the life changes that I had to go through mm-hmm. and the pain that I was dealing with, I just wanted to feel good for that small period of time and i was willing to sacrifice anything to feel that yeah you do something that that yeah you you knew the risk you knew the benefits and yeah but it was just that feeling of doing something that reminded me of a time before the diagnosis yeah that gave me some sense of normalcy and that's really what you want as a patient you want to do normal things and feel normal again while you're trying to cope with the fact that your life will never be the same. So for me, that's how it manifested, where I knew the risk. But those five to ten minutes of eating normally, 
that was worth every bit of discomfort I felt after. Hmm. And I, I kept doing it. I kept doing it until eventually it stopped. I did it every day. And every day, it was worth it to me. And that's what it is for patients. It'll manifest in different ways, but we always try to get back to our normal. And a lot of times, as a caregiver, you try to fight that because you're trying to follow instructions. And say, well, they said you couldn't do that, so ah, I got I to gotta stop you. And then that leads to arguments. It leads to bickering. It leads to distrust between mm-hmm. the two. And a lot of times as a caregiver, you kind of have to suspend disbelief. And you kind of just need to ride the wave until the patient understands, hey, it's not going to happen this way. And then they make the switch, right? Yeah. But in that time, as a caregiver, because you didn't oppose what they were going against, now we build up that trust. Now I see you as an ally and not my adversary that's trying to keep me from being happy, yeah. right? And that's important because if you're caring for someone that's sick, they have to see you as someone that's on their side to make it easier for you to care for. And a lot of things that we do to try to help them recover or help them heal are unnecessary, and they lead to a lot more stress than is needed. So I learned that from that experience where everyone would try to tell me not to do it, and I'm telling them, hey, I'm going to do it. You're not going to stop me because I can Uber Eat almost any time of day. And I did. Every time I, I Uber Eat it at 11, I Uber Eat it at midnight. They were coming. They weren't going to stop coming. So it's like, why do this battle? I'm willing. I was willing to go through a fourth surgery just to feel good again. Yeah. And that's the, the mental and emotional aspect of a patient that we're not taught about that human nature comes into effect so after going through that experience eventually i was discharged in november and and at this point you said this is november yeah november when i finally left for the second time so you you went through that first surgery the bill roth you came back with the infection you had the x lap you had the thoracentesis and then yep. the video-assisted thoracic got a drainage. Surgery. Well, I had the CT got a drainage that I woke up during. That's right. And then I had the, the VAT, the video-assisted thoracoscopic. With chest tubes. And then the chest tube. Oh. Yes. So, and a wound back, which trying to use the bathroom with all these things attached is a hassle in itself. Looking back at it, you know, a lot of people asking, well, were you scared? Were you afraid? Like, what were you feeling? Were you sad? And it wasn't. It really wasn't any of that. It was mostly anger. Uh, anger and resentment. And I feel like that's what kept me alive. Because it kept me from being depressed. Because I was just angry and irritable all the time. And I just felt like that kind of hot emotion kept me alive. What right? were you angry about? Uh, I was just angry that all of this had taken place and I didn't have an answer as yeah. to why. And that I was going through all these kinds of setbacks, all these kinds of things that were going wrong, feeling as though, you know, the loved ones in my corner were taking the nurses and physician side, all those things. And then they tried to over-spiritualize it, which I really hated. 
because I feel like, especially in the South, <laughs> so we over-spiritualize things. So when I was in the hospital, they got me a book of uh, Promises of the Bible. And so they're reading the typical, you know, by stripes we healed, all of that. And so I'm sitting there and I'm like, if you guys are saying this, then why am I here feeling like this? Why am I in pain every day? Why am I fighting for my life here? Why am I going through this? This doesn't add up to what you're saying. And we try to preach or counsel or tell people, oh, it's going to get better. There's people that have it worse. And it's really not helpful. It's really kind of tone deaf in those situations. And you understand it's coming from a good place. So as a patient, you still get mad at them, but then you feel bad about being mad because they're doing the best they can. So then yeah. you feel guilty, right? It's just all these emotions that come from that, that people don't understand. So it's one of those things like I'm doing what I believe. I'm using my faith. I want to encourage you. But sometimes as a patient, we just need you to be there and just let us vent it out and move on from there. And, you know, that's just one of the other things I learned just going through all of that. The procedures, had them all, the narcotics. Uh, to me, they were overrated. They didn't really work uh, for me. They had me on a dilated pump. It was okay. Um, it helped with the pain somewhat. The getting high effect, I had none of that. And I was expecting it. None of that. I'm talking Vicodin, Percocet, Oxy, um, fentanyl patch, lidocaine patch. Like, didn't work. So the lot of pump was really the last resort. And even then it was like, it took it down to like maybe a three or four. So going through all those things and then being discharged home, I still had to physically rehab for another five months. So mm -hmm. even though I was going home, I still didn't feel like I was free. It was like, okay, I'm getting out of prison, but I'm in halfway house now. So it's better, but, I'm not free yet. And so then you sit with all the emotions and trying to figure it out, trying to figure out how my life could be flipped like this at such an early age. You know, if I was in my 80s, I could, I could deal with that. But 31, you know, thinking I'm in the best health of my life and then realizing you might have died if you hadn't gone in there. Yeah. And that's something I still think about. Like, if I hadn't had any medical training, I probably would have died because I wouldn't have thought to think, hey, this may be cancer, this may be obstruction. I wouldn't have even felt that from the only symptom I ever had. My message for that is if you have any kind of symptom, just get it checked out. Like, you'd rather be safe than sorry. I know as physicians, we hate when people come in and it's not really, you know, a serious disease, but sometimes it is. Right. And yeah. those lives that you save from someone being extra careful are worth all the times you were annoyed because it was really a uh, non-issue. So to anyone listening, if you feel symptomatic in some way, just get it checked out because you, you never know. And that's the thing about medicine. You never really know until you get that scan, until you get that test. You don't know. Your life is worth you it. Know? Your life is worth it. Just get it checked. Don't feel embarrassed about it. Regardless of what they say, don't worry about making the ED physician mad. 
because they, they might be on their late night. Just don't worry about that. Your life may be in the balance. You're, you're looking at a couple hours so, of inconvenience or 12 hours or whatever your case may be, but it is worth it. Yeah, over the rest of your life, over 60, 70 years of your life that you get because okay. you checked it out. So, so Dr. Dixon, you said five months of rehab, and then did you start back to residency, or what happened next? Five, so five months, and then I started back in February, uh, mid-February. Um, I started back uh, residency again. So um, I came in, I was like 205 before the first surgery. When I finally left the second time, um, right before November, I was 135. So none of my clothes fit. So I I had to get all new clothes. And that was another issue um, because my parents, everyone was like, hey, get some new clothes. So, yeah, so I'm thinking... No, man, if I just eat and work out, you know, I'm going to be able to sit back in my clothes in a couple of months. And on the outside looking in, you know, you would say, he's delusional. What's he talking about? Like, he effectively had a bariatric surgery. He can't eat like he used to. He just started back working out a little bit. This is not possible. He went from a a 46 suit size, you know, chest to a 38. Like, this makes no sense. This is not going to happen. And looking back at it, this is one of those cases where it's a deeper issue that manifests in something else. So to me, at that time, it was the fear of acknowledging that I had cancer, that I had this surgery, that my life would never be the same. And then the fear of not knowing how my life would turn out, of not knowing whether my life would be good again or whether it would match up to the life I had before. And because I was so unwilling to start over, anything that looked like starting over, I fought against. So acknowledging that I would have to give all these clothes away to goodwill, that I have to buy all new clothes, would say, hey, this happened to you. Yeah. Hey, you, your life is different. You got to take medications. You got to get CT scans. You got to start over was acknowledging all the bad things that happened. And a lot of times as patients, we don't want to admit that. We don't want to admit that we have diabetes. We have to change how we eat. We don't want to admit that, oh, I have high blood pressure. I got to change this. I had a stroke. I can't move. Like a lot of things we don't want to come to terms with right away. And so we fight against that reset, that change, because we don't know what our life will be, you know, afterwards. I didn't know that my life would be better afterwards. I couldn't see that. And it took me about a week to come to terms with, yeah, there's no way I'm going to get back in these clothes in that amount of time. That, <laughs> you know, eventually I came around. But if the people around me don't know that and don't know that eventually the patient will get it, you're having an argument every day about it. Now you're stressing yourself out. Now you're trying to force them to do it. Now it's messing up the bond and relationship you have between, you know, your loved one, your spouse, your parent, your sibling, all of that. And you're fighting just an unnecessary battle that can break you apart. And so that was just another instance of learning like that. Reset as a patient is something that 
can manifest in different ways that physicians will fight against, dentists will fight against, physical therapists will fight against, your family, everyone has to face that in some form or fashion. But when you know where it's coming from, then you know how to actually address it. So going through the rehab physically, learning how to just get my strength back, because I've been in the bed for so long, muscles got weak, had to learn how to walk, had to learn how to, you know, get the respiratory strength back. Just uh, doing a center spirometry, I had to take one of those home, do those every hour, just to build up the capacity to do normal activity. So by the time I got to February, I was able to do that. And started in geriatrics. Then I had to make up the first five months that I had missed on my third year. Mm-hmm. So I was doing ICU, I was doing floors, the 24-hour ICU shift. I did all that. And it just felt great to be back. It really did. That was a big moment of feeling normal. Like I'm back to doing normal things. Even though I'm going through a lot personally, I really needed that sense of this is what I was doing before. Like I'm back where I need to be. And my whole perception of life is different. So I needed that. Now, unfortunately, because I missed five months, that delayed my graduation from residency all the way to December 2018. So I graduated then, and then I had to go into uh, outpatient. That was the first job I had doing outpatient work. And I ran across patients that were dealing with caregiver burnout, dealing with their spouses having health conditions, their parents having health conditions, their children having health conditions, and being a single parent, not knowing how to deal with it, not knowing how to deal with the patient, how to cope with them. So it was through talking with them that I could break it down and say, okay, they're saying this, but this is really what's going on. Yeah. And that's when I felt like I made the most impact. And it was like, okay. I need to do something like this because the outpatient, the billing, the coding, fighting insurance companies, all the administrative work, I hated it, to be honest with you. I hated it. Couldn't stand it. Because I didn't go to medical school to learn how to bill and code. I didn't do that. <laughs> no one goes to medical school to learn how to calculate RVUs and WRVUs. Like, we didn't go to school for that. Yeah. You know, that was something that was forced on you and then you have to figure it out because it's tied to your compensation the hospital monitors it they use it as a, a performance metric to make to see if they want to keep you on all these administrative things we didn't go to school for and i couldn't stand it so corona hit a lot of clinics shut down so we got the excess but at that time we were seeing 28 plus a day from the overflow. Your volume went up. March. Yes, the volume went up because we were one of the only clinics left that hadn't Ooh. closed down yet for COVID. So now we're just getting overrun. And, you know, when patients make appointments, you know, they're taking off from work. You know, they're making plans in advance. So no one wanted to give up their appointment that they waited months for. So it was rough. We had people that caught it in the workplace. Luckily, I tested negative, but then it was just like, okay, this has got to stop because I'm miserable. This isn't really my purpose. And so I left there 
This is April. And then talking with my mentor, we went through my story. We talked about the current things I was dealing with in terms of getting a CT scan every three months, which I'm still doing, by the way, mm. um, to check it, to make sure the GI stomach tumor doesn't come back because it was such a high uh, mitotic rate that we had to check it every three months. Um, taking the medication um, every day, uh, my chemo pill I take every day. Um, the side effects that do come from some of those, uh, just going over that experience. And that's when I understood, like, there was a real blind spot in medicine. Because at all my visits, they talked about how I was feeling physically. Cool. But we didn't talk about the mental, the emotional trauma I was dealing with or the trauma my parents or friends were dealing with and taking care of me. But I could see it every day. And I was like, hey, we need someone to address this aspect. But you can't address it unless you lift it. Yeah. There's no way I would know any of this had I never had cancer. It's impossible. Like you, I can tell you, you can say, okay, I understand that. But to feel it and know it is different. And to people that are dealing with it, that's what you need. You're caring for your spouse and you're just at your wit's end and it's taking away from your personal life. It's taking away from your career. It's taking away from your family, dealing with your kids. It's taking away from your hopes and dreams and you're at your wit's end. You need someone that can feel that and say, hey, I understand and it's okay. And this is how we're going to navigate through this so that you regain your humanity and that being a caregiver doesn't kill you, Right. Yeah. So that being a caregiver doesn't equal to being a martyr. That it doesn't mean you're sacrificing everything and then you have resentment towards the person you care for. You know, for some people, it's, hey, you had someone that died and you didn't even know they were sick until the day before. Now I have these unanswered questions. I have survivor's remorse. Why didn't they tell me? Did they not love me? Did they not know I would care for them? All these questions. And I've had patients talk about it. So in my situation as someone who did that to my mother, and I love my mom, but it, I had to do it. That's what I thought. <laughs> yeah. So I'm in a position where I can explain to you as someone who did this and lived to tell about it, this is why they held it from me. Now I can give you the closure that you wouldn't get from the loved one that passed away, right? I can tell you, hey, they knew probably a couple months ago, but because they wanted to live life a certain way, they didn't want you to be sad until the end. They didn't want it to be their last moments of life grieving the entire time. Mm -hmm. They lied to you. And it's out of love. But the other aspect is, as a patient, we know that the people around us love us, right? And I know in your love for me, you'll sacrifice anything to make sure I'm okay, to do what you can to help me. As a patient, I don't want you to hurt yourself to help me. So if I have to lie, if I have to withhold information, if I have to admit things, if I downplay how I'm feeling, I'm going to do that to protect you from your own love. 
And that's what we think is patience. I have to protect you from your love. If, if we're in a relationship or if we're married, right? You're my spouse. We've been married, let's say, five, ten years. Have kids. I know the love is there. You, you're willing to give your life for me. But I have to stop you. Yeah. I don't need you hurt, too, on my account. I know your love is so strong that you'll let it destroy you. So I have to protect you from your own love. I have to stop you. Now, is that healthy? No. But that's what happens. And so when I'm talking to families, when I'm talking to couples, that's what I have to break down. Let you know, hey, they're not pushing you away because they don't love you. They're pushing you away because they're afraid of what your love will do to you. Right? So they're trying to still protect you. Even though they're sick, even though they need your help, even though they want your help and your comfort and your love, they're afraid of what it will do to you. And so once you break down those barriers, then they say, okay, it's not hate. It's not distancing. It's not them wanting to be alone. It's not all these negative things. It's out of love. So how can we redirect that to a positive manifestation so that we can work together? so that we can still stay together and get through this time period. Yeah. Because a lot of things that we go through in life, all the trials and tribulations we go through, sometimes we go through it so we can warn other people what to avoid, what not to do, how to avoid this pitfall. But a lot of times we go through things because there are people behind us that can't avoid it, and we have to show them how to go through that same process and have them go through it better than we did. Yeah. And that's why I'm alive today. That's honestly why I believe I'm alive. Because all the things I've explained to you as an anesthesiologist, you know I shouldn't be here. Yeah. You know what I mean? Looking at this uh, mass and what you've been through, the yeah. complications, oh my God. Yeah, you know I shouldn't be here. So I'm alive because there are people behind me that won't avoid the cancer diagnosis. They're not going to avoid... HIV. They're not going to avoid strokes. They're not going to avoid COVID. They're going to go through this same hospitalization process. They're going to go through the rehab. They're going to go through the medical PTSD. And there has to be someone that's walked through the past to say, hey, this is how you make it through and get to the other side. Because yeah. there aren't that many people that can do that. There aren't that many people that are medically trained that can do it and say, hey, these are all the things I went through. These are the traumas you're going to face. These are the mental aspects that you're going to deal with. This is how you get over here. And this is how you get to a life that's even better than the one you had before. And so that's what my purpose is now. And so cancer all the experiences, I can laugh at them now. It wasn't funny back then. But three years later, I can laugh about it. That, that's, one of, that's one of us laughing, brother. That's, that's one of us laughing. I can laugh about it now. I guess because it happened to me, I can laugh. Right? Yeah. But all of that gave me a purpose. This is the first time in my life, I'm 34 now, that I've ever felt I had a purpose. Even in medicine. Even strictly hospitalist. Strictly outpatient strictly being a black physician in America and doing it for your community. This is the first time I 
really felt a purpose. Like, this is the first time where I can say, you know what? This is why I'm alive. This is what I was born for. And I never had that before. So that's why, you know, I find joy in the story. Yeah. Because it, it's given me a reason to live. Even though it almost took my life, it gives me a reason to live today. So that sense of purpose, like, it sounds like having gone through everything, you were able to finally sit and process what you went through with your mentor. And out of that has grown this platform that you've developed um, right. and, and been able to, to teach others and give back. Exactly. And so with uh, working with mentor, life coach, um, so we developed a platform uh, called the Caregiver's Sanctuary. Uh, so whole website, www.thecaregiversanctuary.com. So the purpose of it is to provide these tools on how to manage taking care of someone that you love as a caregiver. Because a lot of us aren't trained in how to care for someone when they get sick. But inevitably, we're all going to deal with it, whether it's our parents, whether it's siblings, disabled child. At some point, we're going to care for someone we love that's sick. So using my experience, using the things I've learned, the things I've researched about caregiver burnout, about medical PTSD, you know, there are a lot of tools. There's a lot of information. I have blog posts. I have excerpts all kinds of tools to help you navigate that system and navigate that time period of being a caregiver. I also do consultations and counseling for caregivers. I do counseling for the patients. I do group sessions, uh, whether it's spouse, whether it's family members, whether it's children and adults. I do counseling for all of those as you navigate that time period or whether you're widowed or whether you had a loved one recently passed away, you need that counseling too. And even kids. Kids are affected by seeing, you know, their parents or their older siblings go through traumatic hospital experiences. And we don't really focus on that enough because we think, oh, well, they're five. Oh, they're eight. They're too young to get it. But they actually do. And that trauma can last. So through the caregiver sanctuary, that's basically a place where, as a caregiver, here's where you come to get your relief. Yeah. Because as caregivers, you know, you feel like no one understands you. And you feel these emotions towards your situation. And you feel that you're an awful human being because you're upset. I'm mad that I have to do this. I'm annoyed because they keep asking for this. I wish I didn't have to deal with this. I wish someone else would take over. I wish I could just leave. These are normal aspects of human nature. But as a caregiver, you feel guilty about it. You feel like you're an awful human being, like you're a villain for feeling these things because you've been thrown into the situation. So I created a safe space where we can come and discuss that. It's no judgment. We can help you process your feelings, and we can give you methods and tools to navigate your personal experience. Uh, to navigate your personal experience. So that's pretty much what I've created that whole thing for. Oof. To say, hey, this is the place that you guys can come 
to get that help. And on top of that, I do virtual seminars every uh, every two weeks on Sunday to discuss these topics. So whether it's inside the mind of a caregiver, um, inside the mind of a patient, dealing with end of life, how to deal with guilt, how to appropriately respond when your patient's upset, all these topics that caregivers have questions about that they don't know how to manage. So that whole platform, you know, is allowing me to come in contact with a lot of people and help people of all ages. As we've been finding now, there are a lot of millennials that are going through this now. As we get in our 30s, some of our patients, some of our parents, they're getting up there in age or they had, you know, conditions that shortened their life and they had to deal with that. And so there's people our age that need this help as well. So with this, it feels right because I can use what I've gone through to benefit others. I can use all the things I've learned to teach not only the caregiver, but the person they're caring for, how to stick together and make it to the other side. Or if they lost a loved one, I can help you with that closure that you need and answer those unanswerable questions because I've been there. And I likely did the same thing they did before they passed away. So that's really what I'm here for. And that's really the message I want to, you know, give out. And while I'm doing that, I'm still working on just advancing the conversation about medical PTSD, because it's not just about if something goes wrong, that you have trauma. Because, yeah, things went wrong, but eventually everything went right. And I was discharged. And I still had trauma. And it wasn't in the typical sense of nightmares or being triggered or being unable to talk about it. It was none of that. Because I went right back to residency as soon as I could. It didn't affect me at all. But the other symptom categories of PTSD that we don't really talk about, the apathy, the emotional numbing, the irritability, the lashing out, the bouts of anger, all of those, we don't talk about enough. But they can happen whether the treatment is successful or not. So in meeting patients, other cancer survivors, we have those kind of war stories where we can relate. But I wanted to create an environment where the people that cared for those patients can also share their stories and relate because they go through trauma themselves. They go through physical ailments themselves. Even in, you know, the research that I found, just looking at what happens to caregivers on a health scale, you know, there's a lot of morbidity and mortality that can come from that. And so I like to think of caregivers as silent victims because we don't really know that they're victims until it's too late and they're in the hospital, right? Yeah. But even looking at the studies, you know, caregivers, for example, caregivers that deal with a loved one with dementia, right? 46% higher rate of depression, 25% higher rate of anxiety. We've also seen that caregivers have accelerated aging decreased immune system, right? They did a four-year retroactive study and found that amongst middle-aged 
caregivers, over a four-year period, their mortality rates were 63% higher in that age group when compared to controls. So there's a detriment to being a caregiver that's burnt out and doesn't have the resources or the support. And now it's affecting their health. It's affecting their life. So I just want to treat another underserved community that I know I can help personally, that I can fit into in a niche market sort of way. Yeah. No, Dr. Dixon, that is uh, an incredible story, shows incredible strength uh, and resilience on your behalf. I know Dr. Italo Brown, he told me, you know, you got to have my guy Jamal on the show, um, have him tell a story. And and I'm so glad you were able to come and share with us what you've been through and, and what you're doing now to help other people. Um, as, as we wrap up, would you mind let everybody know where they can find you again? I know you dropped the website before, but go ahead and, and give us that uh, web address as well as your social media that they can follow you at. Right. So my social media um, is Memoirs of a Patient. Um, I created that because eventually I'll write a book about the whole experience because I was journaling every day when I was in the hospital. So Memoirs of, of a Patient on Instagram, the actual website that you need to go to is www.thecaregiverssanctuary.com. And so I want to ask you guys to just take a look at the site, sign up for the email newsletter so you can get all the news about the upcoming virtual seminars, blog posts, informative posts that I'm going to have, and then share the website with all the people that you know that are taking care of someone that's sick you know, that are taking care of a spouse, a child, a parent. Share it with them as well so that they can get the benefit. And if you go on the website and you're one of those people that are dealing with taking care of someone who is sick, I have a caregiver questionnaire at the bottom, um, a series of questions that will kind of open your eyes to the things and symptoms that you're dealing with as a caregiver. And I'd also say go ahead and share it because... I'm going to have an upcoming uh, seminar um, on the 28th of March, and then it's every second Sunday after that. So go to www.thecaregiversanctuary.com, sign up for the email newsletter, share it to anyone that you think is suffering from stress or taking care of someone, have them just check out the site, do the caregiver questionnaire, and then just follow along with me and then tap in whenever I do the seminar and they're going to be coming through. Awesome. Dr. Dixon, thank you so much for joining us on the Black Hunters podcast and sharing your story. And thank you, man. Thank you for just having me there. Uh, thank you for just having this platform for us to really speak, you know, our stories and really get this information out to help us. And I really appreciate it. The Black Doctors Podcast is a nonprofit volunteer passion project with the goal of inspiring all who listen. Tune in next week for another episode of the Black Doctors Podcast with Dr. Stephen Bradley, your friendly neighbor.